everyone, and welcome back to Making the Scene. This is a podcast where we bring on a guest every episode. That guest brings on one of their favorite scenes, and we discuss that scene from every angle that we can think of, from editing to performance to lighting to camera work. Whatever components go into making that scene work, that's what we discuss. So welcome back. Today we are joined by Anna Williams. How are you doing, Anna? I'm doing well. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. I I hope this isn't too traumatic for you. I, I you know I think I'll manage to um to get through. I, I I'm feeling I'm pretty juiced on coffee right now, and um I think all's going to be well. Um, ah, but I I put <laughs> iocane powder in your coffee from from a distance. That's pretty amazing. And I thankfully I've been building up a resistance to iocane powder because people keep trying to poison me with it. So damn it. <laughs> so um, we'll have a talk with. What's that? <laughs> um, why don't you uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Um, what, what's the, what, are you, what are you up to in your wonderful and exciting life? Um, poisoning Eric. Yes. Um, collaborating with his enemies. Um, <laughs> I am actually a musician, um, and which does not have anything to do with analyzing anything about movies except occasionally the music. Which happens less often than you might think, um, mainly because I do it enough in my day job. Um, it, but, I but you do have a rather excellent. Um, you, you might be one of the most have, qualified scene deconstructors we've had on the. Um, no, podcast. no, no! You are not building up expectations like that. <laughs> Bad, Eric. No cookie. Um, I run a blog called Murderboarding at Blogspot. With the best friend who will be on the podcast. I have no idea what order you're airing them in, but we'll be in the podcast talking about the other Del Toro film Eric's doing. Um, And we analyze the uh, ever-loving shit out of TV. So this is actually kind of a new experience. I haven't done as much of this with movies, which is... It's different. I mean, you have a huge budget for most movies, especially as compared to TV. And you have a lot more time to get everything just perfect. Whereas with TV, we can analyze where they all of a sudden had to make some changes because they lost an actor or didn't have budget or didn't have time. But we, we do a lot of, of sci-fi and fantasy analyzing. And it's fun. You should definitely check it out. What's the uh, URL for Murderboarding? Uh, Murderboarding.blogspot.com. One of these days we will actually, you know, transfer that to a real domain and all that good stuff. But uh, that's like work and we're lazy. (laughs) And you're all on hiatus kind of right now as you wait. We are on summer hiatus. Yeah, that we, we get Haven back in September and Grimm back in October. And we still haven't quite decided, I don't think, um, if we can really manage to wrangle Sleepy Hollow on top of that. But we kind of want to, because we're masochists. <laughs> well, they, they got me hooked on, um, on Haven via their, 
They're and I am not excellent. even a little bit sorry. It's excellent. So we're all waiting for that to come back. So definitely make sure you check out. There's a there's a um a extensive history of of posts on a number of other shows that have either completed or that they've given um given a pass to after some time. But definitely check out Murderboarding. Um, it's excellent. And yes, as as Anna pointed out, um, her partner in crime will be joining us. And I think I am going to be airing it next because we have um something different happening. All of my films have been over the map so far uh but for the first time here we're going to be analyzing two films by the same director we're starting today with pacific rim and then we'll be going into more of his indie horror um avenues with uh pan's labyrinth in the future so it's and that was not even remotely intentional I, I had two separate chats going actually um simultaneous and they were not speaking to each other and they both pitched a uh, del toro movie at me. So I thought that was kind of exciting because there are sort of two Del Toros uh, and we're going to hit into one of them, which is the um, the blockbuster Del Toro uh, for today's film. So we're going to be discussing Pacific Rim, um, which, as we said, is directed by Guillermo Del Toro. It was written by Travis Beecham and Guillermo Del Toro. Um, his cinematographer for this was his longtime collaborator, Guillermo Navarro, who's a fantastically talented cinematographer. And editors Peter... Amundsen, Amundsen, and John Gilroy. Uh, so that's the uh, core technical team behind the Pacific Rim, and um, it's a fantastic movie for anyone who has been obsessed with giant monsters or giant robots for at any point in their life, or even if not, it will probably help you become obsessed with them. And um, just a great movie, and I would just want to note that there is going to be a Pacific Rim 2, which is a giant moment of celebration for all of us, because if you love this movie... You're in, and if you didn't, I don't even know what to say to you. So, um, but we're going to be discussing one specific scene, a rather pivotal scene in it, and I'm going to let Anna um, introduce the scene and tell us a little bit about why she chose it. So, take it away. So, the scene we're picking is the first real drift that uh, Mako and Raleigh go through. Um, the complete failure of the drift, in fact. Um, it's that pivotal moment in every hero's journey where the hero gets their first chance to do something really big and really great and they fuck it all up. Um, And then they have to, of course, come back and do it better the next time when something's really on the line because this is the test and she has to fail the test. And yes, this is Mako's hero's journey, not Raleigh's, which is something that is so incredibly rare in these movies that that's definitely one of the things that grabbed me about Pacific Rim when when I first saw it, which which is you don't get female heroes taking a sort of classic Campbellian journey like this. Um, this scene, we get to talk about T- Del Toro and his use of color, which is always fun. There's a ton of weird, interesting, really polished cinematography going on. Um... And I say that in terms of the experienced um, nature of it and knowing exactly what they want to get out of their filming, not necessarily um, polished in the sense of being all shiny and perfect. Um, it, it's rare in a, in a movie that you have both a pivotal character moment that's paired with a very... Um, one of the most technically proficient scenes in the movie too. There's a lot of technical things happening in the scene, even though it's primarily about finally understanding 
what what Mako's background is because we've been sort of hinting at the fact that there's something there's some reason she wants to be an up to be a pilot that goes beyond just wanting to be a pilot. She wants revenge. She right. wants there's there's trauma. There's there there's been all these hints about um all of that control that she shows is hiding a very deep trauma and a deep sense of rage. And all of a sudden we get to see what this is about. And and it's really impressively well done. Um, it's also one of the best uses of a child actor I've seen in a really long time. Del Toro um, is one of the rare directors who can really get great performances. I was just to going them. to say, I haven't actually seen Pan's Labyrinth, but I understand that this is kind of del- one of Del Toro's strengths, yeah. Yeah, which is another reason it's going to be interesting talking you know, twice about um, getting primarily reaction um, acting out of a child actor and reaction acting is an extremely difficult thing to do. You know, when you have dialogue, it's one thing to be able to pull in, but when you're forced to, to basically react wordlessly to things, which is a lot of what's going on in the scene. And um, not just that, but the scene was intensive green screening. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot um, of special effects stuff happening in this. There's not a whole lot of real thing to be reacting against here. Yeah. I mean, they built the, the pilot's cockpit and, and they really filmed in that and had, the adult actors having the sense of that that wobbling and yeah movement so in there so just to get the audience knowing um this is kind of a long sequence and we've narrowed in on one specific point of it because the the drift sequence sort of starts a little earlier but there's a lot of intercutting to other things um like Mm -hmm. newton's um revelation about um what their kaiju have mastered so where we're actually picking it up is uh, at about 51 minutes into the movie, when we come back after they've initially initially synced up and we catch Gypsy in its excellent combat it, it, It's after all of the sort of technical tower tower things where they're all neural handshake initiated, neural connection achieved, etc., 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 and then it all goes to shit. Yes, and we, we come in just as it goes to shit. And before we talk about the scene, and I don't usually go outside, but because the scene is so chopped up, I just want to talk briefly about the um, the shooting of like the, the drift sequence, like the, the syncing up itself, which we don't have a whole lot of time to go into, but I do, I, I love the way that we get mergings of memories in the drift, and we sort of get something that I think bears on this scene, which is we get a lot of happy Mako scenes in the initial drift before we get to this point in the scene. We see a little bit of yeah. Raleigh, but we see a lot of little Mako pretty happy. I think we see her with her father yeah. in that scene. We, and- see, we see her with, yeah, I, I didn't go through because it's it's a lot of very, very short clips, but we see her curled up in a sand Zen garden. We see her with her family, um, at least with her father, I think with both parents. Um, we see her playing, um, and she and she's happy. Yes. And then all of a sudden, she's not. Yes. And what, what, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because something we, we had kind of talked about as we were preparing for the episode that I think is maybe a good place to just quickly start at is that, you know, the, everything goes wrong. The trauma sort of jumps into the drift at this point, but, you know, we get every, like, the the initial drift of these two that sync, they, they sync up and we get you know, who Mako was before this all happened. You know, before mm-hmm. she she became the Mako that wants to be a pilot, before she's the Mako with this trauma she's carrying around, that initial handshake is actually uh, a positive experience for them. And and it looks like a lot of positivity is coming from Mako coming into this right before we get into the scene and Raleigh 
Raleigh's trauma comes out. As and the and the as they discuss throughout the movie, the drift is all about trust and being able to trust your co-pilot. And, and so there is very clearly a great deal of trust. And I think in some respects, that's what leads to everything going to shit because they suddenly realize I can trust this person with everything that I have. And the worst thing that they both have is this very severe trauma. And, and you know, one thing that I, I like about the way this scene opens, so we open with, you know, us flashing back basically to, to Raleigh's, um, his brother dying in the cockpit. And what I think is interesting about where we enter the scene is that the two of them are coming from the entirely opposite angle. Raleigh's trauma is why he doesn't want to pilot and Mako's trauma is why she does want to pilot. Yes. Yes. And, you know, and which probably makes sense of why Raleigh is the first one to break because, you know, the initial thing he gets is trust with Mako. Obviously they sync up really, really well, which immediately makes Raleigh's mind go to what happened to the last person. Last person. Yeah. He remembers his brother, and not only is he carrying that, but he's carrying, as he says later, his brother's memories of dying because they were still in drift. Which is one of the most horrifying things about the drift that, you know, when one person goes. Oh, my God. (laughs) So horrifying. And, and, you know, so we we get to this. And and the the first thing we see, and I think this is interesting from a, a production design angle, is that we see the old Gypsy Danger. And one thing that I really love about this movie's production design is that that Gypsy Danger has been modernized. And we get that in a lot of really interesting and subtle ways from the lighting to the look of the pieces that they're connected to and right down to their flight suits, which are completely different now. Yeah, I'm just paused on their flight suits. It's they've gone from white to black, actually. Yes. And they've gone from this like the the white suits felt very utilitarian. Um, You know, they felt very very, there there was nothing really sleek about the old battle. No. And right down to the fact that. When we see them in their white suits in Raleigh's memory, they're very dirty and battered and um, not entirely um, in one piece, it feels like. Yeah. They're, they're sort of scuffed up and and not sleek. And then we have these black suits. That are like, that are these gorgeous, sci- very sci-fi, you know, modern sci-fi kind of flight suits um mm-hmm. and and there's other elements that kind of go along with those color changes like um you know we don't see it in the flashback but the plasma cannon um control in old gypsy danger is like a physical controller it's this yeah. white chunky piece of technology and now in this scene we get everything's these digital hollow digital. projections yeah which it's like it? having a Jarvis in Gypsy Danger. I want a Jarvis <laughs> in, in a Mecca. Can I have that? Yes. For my birthday? Awesome. <laughs> and, and I kind of love that, like, you know, they never really call attention to that, but it makes sense. You know, we're seven years on, and they've rebuilt Gypsy Danger, and it's not going to have the same stuff in it. And I, I love that it's one of those – there's a lot of elements of contrast we get in this film, via in this scene, via the production design, and that's one of them, that, that Gypsy Danger has changed rather significantly, even though it's the same old bucket, even though it's this the, the – the last of the Mark III um, uh, Jaegers, it's, it, its design is so... And it's almost colder now because it's so modern and so digital. Yeah. There was something kind I of warm and industrial. Almost, it almost goes more with Mako's old, old cold, slow burn of the, her rage in a lot of respects. It sort of mimics that, right, whereas, I would say. Whereas Raleigh and his brother sort of had this kind of like blue-collar kind of factory worker vibe yeah. about them. Yeah. And, and old Gypsy Danger sort of has that look to it. 
Um, yeah. It's very, you know, it's not this. But I, I so we, we come in, and I, I just love that we get that initial initial contrast of that. And I, I like, you know, New Gypsy Danger is very is also very, there's a lot, the lighting in this is very, very artificial. You know, it's like, there's a lot of, like, artificial yellows and oranges and reds mm-hmm. and greens. Like, there's there's all of these, the lighting colors in this are, are I, I I just I have spoken to Paul about Blade Runner and it's it's well it doesn't look like Blade Runner it's kind of that same thing where you know technology has provided yeah. everything everything is is generated everything is projected. It's, it's reminding you of how mechanical it, the whole thing is yeah. yeah yeah totally totally um and you know so everything goes to crap here pretty quickly and and we end up and I I I know that this is sort of the big thing maybe I'm I'm going right into the awesome thing right away but I want to talk about the transition shot that takes us oh, from no, the cockpit. Oh, no, 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 that, that's fine. Like, my, my big first note is about the transition shot. This because is, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful one. It, it's uh, this scene. So we, we get Mako's, you know, Mako kind of starts, as they say, chasing the rabbit, which um, is following her, her memory down too far instead of letting it pass. And it's such a cool phrase. I know, I love that phrase. It's so, it's so evocative. And I know that they don't really, like, go into explaining why they've come down to that phrase. It's just the jargon. Of these people. I mean, it's it's pretty clearly an Alice in Wonderland reference, but you don't have to know that. Right. It just sort of like, it, it makes sense and it, it's part of their world, which is a very big part of the way this thing, they, they set up a lot of details that way. Yeah. They're just like, this is how the world works. Here's their jargon. Here's the way they do it. And... And, you know. and it's clear how much thought they've put into it so that it's internally consistent, but we don't need to see all of the groundwork they did. Yes. We just need to see the results, yes. which is how you do good world building. Totally. Totally. And we get this, you know, most movies would just take us in a cut from the cockpit to the memory. But we sort of we follow Mako down the down the rabbit hole, basically <laughs> via via an entirely practical camera shot. There is yep. I'm sure there's some CG going on with the lighting in the background, but we get this shot and I, I you know, I actually have I, this is maybe the longest note that I have that, you know, we we start on Raleigh, and we pull back to Mako, and then Raleigh and the background go out of focus Yep, as we're on and, Mako. And then we slowly fade, start fading out the background lights. Yes, which I love. We start and painting fading, her face, and everything starts going down behind her. Yep, and, and we, we fade out the background lights, and we f- bring in the what looks like snow and turns out to be ash. Yes, yes. And, and then we kind of focus on her as we go forward, and then... The fi- when we finally cut off of the shot, it's to cement under her feet, which tells us we've, yep. we're now somewhere different. Cement and ash, and it's clearly a road, and she's walking down the center line. I, I love this shot because it's, you know, it transitions us into it instead of it being, you know, it says something that, you know, they don't want us to be abruptly chucked into this memory. You know, they 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 ease us into the shift, and I, and I, I think it's really important that they do that because this is the first time we're seeing the memory. We're seeing the drift from a completely different angle at this point. You know, usually we get mm-hmm. those, just those at, you know, the normal way the drift works, which is the things flowing right. by like water. And now yeah. we're following the memory into something concrete and, and something very- wholly immersive. And, and one of the things about that total immersion is that we have no idea what's actually accurate, what actually happened and what, is being skewed by Mako's trauma. Um, the stuff that goes by like water, we can get a sense that that's accurate emotional, um, sort of shared emotional memory. 
between the pilots. This, it's, it, and with Raleigh, we know that that's basically what happened in as much as we know anything about what happened. Yes. Um, because that, because we saw that at the beginning of the movie. Yes. Um, yeah. Mako, she was a kid. She was a kid and she was incredibly traumatized and that always leads to your memories being even more fucked up than they always, than they can be. Um, I mean, memories are, are weird things. Uh, and it says, and you know, I think that one of the things that speaks to that is that the moment of trauma that we see of hers is not her parents actually dying, but something no. after. You know, we've the the moment it, we pick the her being up, being alone, yes. and and not having anyone to rely on, and trying to save herself, and and there's just there's nothing there. We pick her up after after she's you know after that shattering moment. And and we get the and that's that's the moment that her her brain goes to is 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 that this is sort of the focus of it um and and we actually get the I think this is the second appearance in the movie of of the shoe we we've seen it once before when um, is it in her quarters when yeah when Stacker says that he he owes her that he made her a promise and says she can yeah. go into the drift he presents her the shoe. Right, point. right, right, right. And that's the first time we see it. And now the second time we see it, I think, is in adult Mako's hand after she yep. goes into the memory. Yep. So we go, we've seen the shoe before, and now we're cued off the shoe. And, you know, one of the things that Del Toro, I listened to the commentary on this movie, which I almost never do, because commentary is usually very boring. Oh, uh, well, you're one up on me then, because I have not. So it, this should be interesting. Yeah, it, It's worth it. Um, this is one of the best commentaries I've ever heard on a movie. It's just Del Toro, and it's a film class. It's it's incredible. And one of the things he points out is that um, red is a color that he's very sparing with in this movie because it represents some very specific things. And it's tied yes. to both Raleigh's and Mako's trauma. Raleigh has the blood on his white suit when, you know, after um, his brother dies. And that's mm-hmm. one of the first splashes of red we get. And then the shoe is indicative of Mako's trauma. And I like that that color links their traumas together. So that's interesting. Did you because I have a note about the color red. It shows up of all places on Tendo, the control tower master. Yes. In yes. his bow tie and his suspenders. And it's a much duller red than either the blood or the shoe, but it's still very much there. Yes. Yes, he is. I think it's interesting that he's one of the places that that red shows up sort of like a like a magenta off red and then like a lighter red on his suspenders but mm-hmm. um he actually represents he actually wears both of mako's colors in, in a yes. faded sense yes yes of, you know, faded blue um, and a faded and i think red. in a lot of respects that's supposed to tell us that he's also known her growing up yes almost certainly and he is the closest person to people drifting you know he is he doesn't right. he's not a part of the drift but he's controlling the machine that monitors it he is and maybe that's why it's faded because he is you know he's one step removed from it but he still has but a, he's an still there yes. yeah yes um and not just that but um as they talk as we talked about before trust in the drift but you also have to trust the guy in the control room who's dealing with the machines and so he's he's part of that even if nobody's really thinking about it in that sense because he's not literally in their heads 
but he is in their ears a lot of the time. He's one of the yes. only two people that ever talks to them. He's the one wearing the the headset that immediately goes in. Everyone else has to walk up to yes. a microphone. But um, Tendo's got the headset and the and the microphone on his face for for this conversations. Um, and speaking of red, the other place that red shows up obviously are in the alert messages, which makes sense. So like a lot of, when things start going right. wrong, there's lights, there's red lights that appear on the screens. Um, but red is one of the, one of the rarer colors in this movie because of that, because it tends to represent mm-hmm. trauma basically. And they're, and they're, they're linked trauma. And that's, that. I mean, that's a common usage of red in all movies see also schindler's list in which it's even more screamingly obvious right but but this is i actually think in some respects this is better done nobody shoot me yeah (laughs) i do i agree i think you know what del toro's use of of color is is tops in in the industry you know and in anywhere and and it, you know, I like the fact that you know I had not consciously noticed it's the use of red because it is rare enough that you know, unlike Cinder's List where it's screaming at you because it's all black and white except for the red. Yeah. Um, in this, there's a lot of other colors. There's a lot of color in this movie. There's this a, a ton of color. color. I mean, I had noticed the red shoe. I were supposed to notice the red shoe, but noticing the other reds that come out as you go through the movie is somewhat rarer. Um, yes. It's yeah. interesting, though. Um, Hannibal also has a lot of red. Yeah, he does. He does. I, I, think... I, I just realized that because that's the scene after this one. And I wonder, you know, and I'm, I don't know if I heard this in the commentary or not, but I'm wondering also, you know, red sort of is, you know, your passion color. It's your trauma color in this. But in some ways that links, you know, based on his things, it also links red to the kaiju, which, you know, Hannibal was the closest to the kaiju. Of anyone, he's that's true. He's deconstructing their that's bodies. True. He's you know so you know Cannibal was the most kaijuish character that we that we have. So it makes sense that maybe that his his kaiju room especially is swathed mm-hmm. in red. Mm-hmm. So we get we get that. So that's sort of like we have our trauma, we have our passion, and we have our link to the kaiju themselves. Yep. Um, via that, um, and the other color we get so after we cut off Mako, we get to see little Mako, and we get Mako's other color, which is blue. Um, which I love that she's wearing blue in her flashback, and is and has it in her hair, and has it, yeah. And not only that, but um, when we go ahead a little bit, and finally, after the fighter jets come forward, um, and we see the kaiju behind her which by the way is one of the most interesting uses of it's right behind you tropes <laughs> that i think we've had in a while um yes. because we we could be having it come from any other direction but it's right behind her yes. and and it's so quiet at first that we don't realize that that's where it's going to be yeah. Um, and it's also, it's in broad daylight. It's not the standard horror trope of I'm in a dark, spooky house or I'm running through the forest. No, this is broad daylight with ash falling down around her and the kaiju is right behind her. And I think that makes it scarier in a way. It does. In fact, this is the only extended sequence we get of a kaiju in daylight. A, a kaiju, you know, a, yeah. we get a couple of quick shots like Striker Eureka taking it down in the news footage and things like that. But every other major kaiju encounter is in darkness, is at night or under the yeah. sea. This is the only time yeah. we're facing it 
for a long time in, in daylight. In, yeah, in broad daylight. And it's interesting to me, the first actual color that we can see on the kaiju is that same blue in its eyes. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, oh, and speaking of red, actually, and being behind her, actually, another instance of red popping up is when we first get to Mako, and she's crying and she's holding the shoe, they cut, and there's sort of like a walking bridge behind her um, when she's standing there before the kaiju comes out, and it, there's red lettering on on that board. Like, on like there's like red Chinese um, or Japanese. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the, on the, the walking yeah. bridge. So we get a splash of red there right before the kaiju uh, appears. Which I think is another another interesting. It's sort of there, and it's sort of presaging what's about what's to, to come. Yeah, I, I I love the detail of her holding her own shoe that's come off when she's running. Like we pick up um, little Mako, and and that shoe is in her hand, and it's you know there's something. I, the reason I love that I think is because it tells us something about the fact of how you know she is in a trauma moment at this point because you do things that don't make logical sense at like, that point. My shoe fell off, but I have to carry it with me because I might be able to put it back on sometime, somehow, or something. Exactly. Like, you there's there you, you picked it up because that's what you do, and then she's running, carrying the shoe. Or actually more likely, considering that she's a kid, and those are really, those are shiny, nice shoes. These are probably some of her favorite shoes. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't want to leave it behind. Yep. Um... And, and you, so you pick it up and carry it with you, even though you're in this life or death situation. Here you are protecting this fallen shoe. Yeah. And, and thus it makes sense that we've kept the shoe from then on. Like this is, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it, if it wasn't for that, if it, if she wasn't carrying it, I feel like her still having it and that being the symbol of everything wouldn't make sense. But it being so prominent in this and that she's holding it with her the whole time. Yes, um, really and I think we that. can safely say that that is an accurate piece of the memory for her, whatever details may or may not be accurate to De- it. Definitely, considering she comes into the memory as adult Mako holding the so shoe holding as well. It. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, that's definitely a big thing. And um, and then, you know, we get, when the when the kaiju appears, um, I I love that, I, there's this there's this incredible, first of all, we get it twice coming out of the smoke. We get the, the jet fighters hitting it, and there being fire and smoke, and then we get mm-hmm. this cut into its face as it, like, it emerges, its face emerges from the smoke to give its evil, horrible crab kaiju scream, um, yep. and it's one of, the, one of the many uses he has of, like, the mixture of environmental effects along with, you know, hiding the kaiju and then not hiding the kaiju. I love the environmental effects in this movie. The, the ash, the smoke, the fog, the yeah. rain, anytime it's coming on. He just, he has not left a single sense out. You can, pre- if he had smell vision you can bet your ass you would be <laughs> smelling the ash. <laughs> yeah, he's, he is, he is so, his worlds are so immersive. Um, it's amazing because you don't get that in many, especially in blockbusters. You know, blockbusters tend to be fairly utilitarian in their mm-hmm. overall setup. We get production design on important things like the robots and whatever but in this we get production design on the on the city we get you know you know we have we you know we get the production design on the in the alley she's in in the in the control room in the jaeger's cockpit there's intricate design and production work all over the place in this movie it's it's i mean the the cars just the abandoned cars there's in with ash on them like it does it, it it's we've seen that shot a bunch of times but there's something so tactile about it in this yeah. scene to me something that jumps out more even though we've kind of seen this abandoned city thing a number of times right 
I well, and in this scene, it really helps um, that she is the only person still above ground. Yes. Um, other scenes like this with the abandoned cars that I can think of have uh, are huge crowd scenes, and there are tons of people screaming. But no, she's all alone. Just this, girl, um, just this girl in this in. And I, I, you know, I do love that along with the shoes, she's in very nice clothes. Like you get the impression that they were out, out on for a nice morning this day. Right. They, were, they were out doing something. This was not, she's not running away from home. There was some happy memory that preceded. Which this makes horror. this trauma that much worse. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, the, um, the, like everything about her whole costuming is one of the definite like high points of this movie. Um, and, mm-hmm. and her, I think that little Mako's outfit is probably the best costume design in the yeah. film. Yeah easily it's it's good it's just gorgeously constructed and and different layers of blue you have the the coat and then the plaid dress the plaid dress um just really really incredible um and we get so when we get the kaiju there's another thing we talked about it being bright here for the first time the other thing i like about this scene is this is one of the only times we engage with the kaiju from the human perspective usually we're in a jaeger and thus we're getting it from the scale of a jaeger other than a couple of shots to remind us of the scale but in this we do once again with the whole crowd scene underground. Yes, we get a couple of scenes of that, but we very rarely get a but, lot of like interacting with the kaiju in those. Yeah. We sort of get these like brief instances of it. You know, because we do have Newton's sort of like thing, and we get the perspective of it breaking through. But this is the scene where we're mm-hmm. like on the street and running right. from the kaiju and watching the and, kaiju and fight. And in a normal disaster movie you'd uh, like this you'd get a ton of those scenes just to emphasize it and instead less is very much more. It, it shows that Del Toro is very interested in the point of view of that particular scene. You know, if someone is in a Jaeger, then we're getting it from the Jaeger point of view because that's our point yep. of view. Raleigh and and Mako are in the Jaeger fighting whereas here where our point of view character is Mako on the ground. And so we never break that. I don't think we ever break that sense of you're on no, the ground looking at the never, monster. Never. I mean, we we break it a little tiny a tiny tiny bit because we have to see Mako herself. So we can't just have the sense of being over her shoulder the entire time. Yes. Um but we're never seeing more than she sees. And it's all at ground level and, and you know, it gives us that low angle view of the kaiju towering over her. Um, it, it's, it's a completely different shot selection setup than the rest of the movie for the most part when we get into extended kaiju sequences. And, you know, it, it shows the thoughtfulness that Del Toro approaches these movies with. You know, it's another thing you get a lot of blockbusters is you get a very sameness. You get a very second unit director feel to action scenes. <laughs> Where, yeah. you know, someone went out and did the plate shots that they had to do, and they're always the same setups and blah, blah, blah. But in this, it feels like an actual director showed up, you know, to actually direct these action scenes and really choose the shots. Mm-hmm. And I I just adore, I adore that. In fact, one of my very favorite shots is from the scene, which is the tracking shot of Mako running with the kaiju behind her. Yeah. Which is a, which is a great horror movie shot. Just a straight it up really, horror shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Did I cut you off? No, no. <laughs> I was sort of raveling a thought somewhere in there, and I lost it. Go ahead. No, that's fine. Um, and you know this this leads us into um into the alley, which I which is one of the this is one of those moments where I just love you know I love to see what set designers do because not only are we in an alley that's decaying, 
where also there's a dumpster, there's trash bags next to the dumpster, there's graffiti, there's a bike in the there's background. There's two bikes. Are there two bikes? There are two bikes. I'm looking at it right now. I, it's amazing. Like, it feels like a real place, this little alleyway. There's a broom. Three bikes? Maybe three bikes. And it, um, it feels like an alley that people use. You know, it doesn't feel yeah. like a set that, that it's built there for her to cower in. It's 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 a real place, you know, just as much as the everything else is a real place. And mm-hmm. and it, it really speaks to the con- – one of the things I love about the contrast of the scene, we had mentioned the artificiality of the light in the Jaeger po- uh, cockpit. This is entirely organic. Everything about it, the, yes. it's natural light. There's no – It's diffuse, yeah. It, it, it is – this memory is in a different, a completely different world than the world she lives in now. This this is sort of the break point of being in that world in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of the time we see Mako, she's in a Jaeger, she's in the Shattered Dome. You know, this is the scene where we see natural lighting and and a natural world and regular cityscapes and and it's just a, it's such a break. And and from this point forward, we're cutting back and forth a lot between the control room and the the, the memory, and it creates such a division between the memory and and the it's real also world. you know what it's also the break point for it's the she's always lived this memory alone yeah and all of a sudden she's not alone in it because we have raleigh standing in the alley right there i um, i love that that raleigh is there in his suit you know like he's yes. this intruding presence from the other from the real world in her memory it, yeah the, you know I, I and i apologize that i can't remember the details but i remember uh, it's worth checking out the commentary for this because he talks about some of the decisions that he made in terms of how Raleigh should be dressed and how he should be it. And I feel like there were some differences in what his initial conception was. And I wish I could remember, which is not a big deal because what we have is great. But if you ever get a chance mm-hmm. to listen to the commentary, he talks a little bit about the the discussions, I think, as to like how Raleigh should appear in the scene. And You know, um, I can see sort of why he might have gone for Raleigh in either the older suit or some civilian clothes or something. But I really, really like this. And I really like this because it's evocative of um, what we don't see in this scene, but we'll see later, which is that she was rescued by a Jaeger pilot. Yes. Um, And you know what the difference I think was? I think that one of the things that was going to be different was Raleigh was not, was going to be hazy, almost ghost-like in the scene as opposed to. Mm, No, I like him solid and physical and really there. It it, it creates Um, an intrusion that is more, it feels more right with the drift as opposed, you know, it feels like he's not really there. It it makes him feel like he's there. If he's ghostly, then it feels like Raleigh isn't a part of the memory, which is not correct and it, for the drift. It, it sort of, yeah, and sort of gives us this sense of Raleigh trying to be this this rock-like steadiness for her to pull her out of this memory. Yes, yes. Um, it, it's, it, it, everything feels so tangible in this, and I, I think it was a good choice. And it, it shows, again, yeah. like, you come in with conceptions sometimes artistically, and you realize and you start getting close that you're not saying the right thing. Um, and so you have to figure out how to say what you want to say. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and yeah. you know, and, and Del Toro, again, really thinks about that. It would be, it would be, you know, the cool thing to do would be have him be a special effect. You know, that would be the, the neat thing. But, mm-hmm. but it's not, you know, it go, you have to go for the what's going on. Um, and we, you know, we come up to now to a couple of shots that I think is really interesting because we start echoing shots with each other. We get the, the kaiju when it attacks in the alleyway. Um, we mm-hmm. have we have little Mako raise her hand, and then we cut to, to adult Mako, yeah, raising you know, with her hand up, pointing forward, and then we get this this mirrored series of shots that I I, mean, I, wrote, I wrote down what happened. So we get 
uh, a face on like a, a shot at Mako's hand and then a reverse shot of from behind it looking at the control panel and then yeah. we cut out the gypsy danger and we get the same exact shot exact we get a shot front front yeah. of the shot and then the point of view of it facing out and and I love that because it ties that this is not a machine. They are the machine. They are, you know, Gypsy Danger right. is Mako at this it moment. It really, really, really clear to us. And we cut even before we cut back to the memory, we cut to the control tower briefly and get, and I think that's actually where I ended up grabbing the note about Tendo being in Mako's colors <laughs> um, because it's so blatant in that one, like, second long <laughs> shot of Tendo with his oh shit face on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, actually, yeah, before we cut back to the alley, we have all of the everyone clears out. Yeah. As that plasma cannon runs up, we get, you know, we get Tendo staying behind to try to fix things. Um, Tendo and the Hansons because they're Australian. Yeah. They, they, there's no way that the Hansons are, are running from it. There are, there are most macho of macho thing. It's this. true. It also it's also a really really good telegraph for um, Herc becoming the new marshal at the end. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you know it ties it shows them. You know later on we do see them standing firm against the kaiju when their mech, when their Jaeger has depowered entirely. Um, so these are definitely people that don't run from from anything. From, yes, if death is going yeah. to happen, death is going to come, and and we get that in a very subtle way. Um, here which i really i really dig um we get a couple of really cool actually a couple of really cool reactions to the plasma cannon lighting up we get that and we get one of my favorite reaction shots in the movies which is the russians are on the bridge yes and they just I like sort of love the russians they just turn He's and like, walk off oh, well well running's not gonna do them any good yeah so you know might as well saunter off like the badasses they are yeah just sort plus, of like, like we know what's plus, going on and this is bad and eh, let's just go we're gonna walk oh, bye <laughs> and that's about the reaction that the triplets have down on the floor, too, it looks like, with a little bit more of the youthful sort of oh shit on their faces, because they are younger. Yeah, and, but, and they definitely seem a little more a little more freaked out by what's going on. Um, they're not losing it, obviously. These are people that fight kaiju. But yeah, whereas the Russians, you can tell, they've been at this forever. They've been doing this for a really long time, and it's just like, yep, we're going to walk. We're going to walk <laughs> away. And it's just a great – that is an unneeded shot in terms of, like, the larger story, you know? And, and But I, it I grounds us in the details of this is a world. There are many, many pilots. There are pilots we don't even know about. And, and not it, just these two teams, which are sort of standing in for all of the other ones in a lot of respects. And it speaks to the fact that sometimes with movies like this, blockbuster movies, and this kind of goes to the blockbuster del Toro, that when you're doing a movie like this, you need to rely on shorthand a lot. You know, you yeah, don't get a chance and to he really absolutely does. Yeah, yeah, you can't dig into the Russians as much as we would like to. I would love a half an hour with the Russians. You know, I would that would be fantastic. But we don't get we can't have the time for that because we have to focus on Raleigh and Mako. So we get this one little moment, and this one little moment says a lot about who they are, and mm-hmm. and it's it's gorgeous that we that we get that um, as as Gypsy Danger threatens to explode. Everyone. I think it's also very telling that the plasma cannon is so very. There's just blue everywhere it's, in back in reality. It's huge. It's huge, and it's it suddenly that is the entire scene in the modern time yeah. is the blue the blue crackling glow of of the plasma cannon that Mako's about to start unloading. 
on everyone. Yeah. Um, and we start getting, we start really getting the awesomeness of both little Mako and older Mako's reaction shots. Um, before I want to talk more about little Mako, but, but, um, Oh my God. But, yes. but first I love, there's a shot of Mako's face with her mouth a little bit open, which is just a terrifying shot. Like when she, like after she's raised the plasma cannon, it is like a, a look of like, of pure detached, like horror rage, you know, like there's not, yeah. there's, it, it is. Mock has checked out reality. Yeah. It's, it's a, it is a, it's a amazing reaction shot. Um, and it's, it's scary. It is a really scary shot to me that, that, you know, it's, it's not, there's not one thing going on. It's not focused rage or anything. Yeah. She is just, this is her trauma is everything now that she's not even in herself at that moment. And it's, it's a, we don't get a ton of shots of Rinko Kikuchi acting in this, bit but that's one and it's it says a lot in about yeah. two seconds but then we get holy crap the actress who plays little mako little mako is just yeah I, I mean she mostly has to spend the entire scene screaming and 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 hyperventilating and and it, and she sells it a lot i i i don't like one of the things that actually really helps with the sell on this going back to the very introduction of her is the sound they ma- managed to match her screaming to the sound of the kaiju alarms That's and incredible i totally didn't notice that that is really incredible um it's it's not a perfect mat it's just a tiny little bit off it's more harmonized almost but it's sort of it's this. It's a similar pitch. It's it's the difference between coming from an organic and an inorganic source, basically. Yeah. Um. And not only that, but the breathing of both of the actresses playing Mako matches. Yes. Um. And it's just it's it's details like that that really really sell how immersive this is. And this little girl is forced to react at a an extremely high emotional level, having had no other scenes effectively to get into the character, no dialogue scenes. The, you know, most, right. most actors at least get other scenes. So when you do have to do these reaction scenes, I mean, I assume that she had to do some kind of film work for the for the hazy drift scenes that we got right before this. Right, all the happy memories and all of that. Which, I mean, probably did help if they did that first. Right. So that she had that sort of grounding. But you still don't get those, like, those dialogue scenes that inform no. the character. You know, you're basically, you know, and, and as a child, you know, I don't understand at all how to work with child actors. You know, I, I get the process of working with adult actors, but the mm-hmm. the, the the getting a child into a place like that is, is a technique that, that obviously I'm not alone in not understanding because most directors completely fail at this. This is yes. this is a really common failure point in movies. As soon as the kid has to come out, it's a it mess. just yeah completely and, goes. And this um, is this is one of the best the best sequences, and it is an insanely difficult thing. It really is. I there are adult actors who could not pull this scene off. Yeah, she's she is a hundred percent selling the the terror of this, and in fact, that's why the scene works. I think because otherwise, it's just a bunch of shots of a CGI monster, but. She she is so terrified and so traumatized through this scene, and we feel it with her. And because, you know, yeah, the, the direction and the shot selections keeping it with her helps that, but if she wasn't selling the emotion, we would not feel this at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and and I'm sure I mean I'm sure the makeup helps too because there's the red around her eyes of having been crying and crying and screaming. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's just the actress by any stretch, but. You, you know, one thing that speak there's a little grace note in this in this sequence with her reacting that that I, I, I want to call out because, you know, one of the one of the things that gets wrongly said about this movie is that Mako is not a good character, not a strong character because of this scene, because she has this breakdown here um, and which which is wrong on all kinds of levels. And they sort of play it as if, well, Raleigh's the calm one and Raleigh has to pull her out. But you know, which A, makes sense from him being a mentor, but there are... Right, there's, there's, but he also is the one who started with the fucking trauma, as he says in the aftermath. Yes, he kicks this he, off, and then and then there's this moment when he is trying to do the calm thing, talking to Mako and saying, it's not real, it's just a memory, and then the kaiju makes a noise and he jumps to He startles, yeah. Yeah. He startles, and that tells her that there's something to worry about. Right, and, you know, it says so much at once. A, he's with her, you know, he's feeling this as much as she is. You know, she, he is he is a part of this memory. He is not a detached piece. But also, you know, this isn't even his memory, and he's reacting to it as if it's real. So it's not even his trauma. And and he, when the, when the startling moments happen, can't control himself entirely. So how are you expecting someone who's never had to face this to to easily be able to handle the right. the vortex of getting sucked into this memory. Right. And I mean, sure she's been in the simulator, but that's not the same thing and it sounds like they never specify, I don't think, but it sounds like if she's been drifting with anyone in a simulator, it's been with Sacker, which isn't exactly a fair or useful even. And um attempt get, to have the, drift do you get the feeling that the simulator drift is not the equivalent of a jaeger drift too because, i absolutely get that sense yeah because raleigh is definitely giving her drift advice before they He's get into giving it and, and pep talk and all of that and it's going to be different it's going to be more intense yeah um i mean they never really tell us how that differs but it makes sense I, I think the the real answer to how does it differ would be science. Yes, <laughs> and and so we don't get the details of it. And, but and let's face but it, if she's if she's drifted with with Stacker in any way, Stacker's not going to lose his his shit. In a Stacker's not going to lose his shit. And um, okay, I mean, fuck it. We don't see it in this memory, but he was there for the end of this. Yes, nothing about this shocks him. Right. Or is going to drag him out of the draft. And, you know, I, I going towards that this is not, you know, Mako's fault, the way people tend to read this. You know, what th- this is as much Stacker's fault. You know, Stacker needed, needed to have told Raleigh what he was getting into. Raleigh getting slammed with her trauma in this way is... Is not helpful, helpful for anyone. And it's Stacker's overprotectiveness that means that nobody knows what they're getting into except Mako sort of like she, she probably has an idea of what Raleigh's trauma is. She has no idea what her trauma is going to do to her. Yeah. Everyone has got Raleigh's file and no one has got Mako's file going into this except for Stacker and Mako essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. And and maybe Tendo, if he was involved at that time, maybe, but I mean, I would guess that, that some of the, 
assorted texts have an idea of what happened because you can't be you, you can't raise a kid in the shattered home <laughs> or in whatever um in whatever shattered home you you transfer between and not have people realize that she was probably orphaned by the kaiju and there's some trauma there even if they don't know the exact details of it right not exactly the the full extent and what and what happened um and and so yeah you know there's no raleigh has been blindsided by this and and mako's never had to carry anyone else's trauma um and and like i said that that moment where he jumps tells us a, a lot about yeah. how immersive how, and, and difficult it is to shake off a memory in the drift. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, that you, you mentioned, you know, that we, we don't get a reveal on this, but we get hints of a reveal. So, uh, you know, it, which that reveal starts right near the end when right, the, the, yeah. the glorious shot of the of the Jaeger being pulled in um, by helicopters oh. over top of her. Yep. Um, which is all we really get and at this we, point. Which is presaged by the sound effect of the helicopters coming, and then we have them look up, and we've got the Jaeger... Yes, it, and it's and it's all its holy, um, heavenly glory as it comes yep. in above her. Um, and I love that what we get in this scene is really just some sound effects after it drops, and then the kaiju yeah. running off to face being dragged off. Actually, does it, it get dragged like. off? Is that what happens? It's it's hard to tell if it it's running towards the Jaeger or if it gets dragged off. I think that's entirely a deliberate camera work choice because it absolutely could be either one. Yes. Um, and again, with the, the flexibility of memory, we don't know which it is. Yeah. And there's no reason that little Mako should have known which it is. It's just all of a sudden the kaiju's not there. It's not an immediate threat, but there's all the sounds and dust and very vague shapes of battle behind her. Yes. And, and, you know, they unplug her at this point. So we don't see the end of the memory. We don't see her, what we see later, which is her going out and seeing but the pilot. we get air. it incredibly foreshadowed as Stacker runs into the control tower back in reality. Yes, yes. and Which is just, it's brilliant, brilliant editing. It is, yeah. He appears at the, at the exact moment <laughs> that he appears. Shouts for them to unplug her and Tendo's like, yes, you moron, what did you think I was doing? <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that. The, by the way, that Jaeger has a plug in the control room that if you unplug, shuts it down. I don't know why. Have you tried unplugging and restarting your Jaeger? <laughs> this is one of those like it's science moments where it's like not. I can sort of guess at what that thing that plug is, but I mean this thing is you know remote. It runs around, but I love that there's a plug in the shatter dome that you can just shut it down. Like all Tendo yeah. needs to do is run behind the control panel and unplug a big plug, and. Down goes the whole neural network, but I guess that means that a lot of the there's an awful lot of neural networking happening in here, um, which mm-hmm. makes me wonder, you know, where the you know how much of the drift happens on these computers too, um, for you to be yeah. able to unplug the thing. But um, it kind of makes me wonder, like, how much can Tendo see on the computers? Is it, for example, like reading the Matrix is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um but we never really get that clearly addressed, which is fine. I actually like it that way. We we don't need to know if Tendo can can see the drift that way. Right. Sometimes you just need to hand wave and you can let you know the audience fill in the details as they need it because otherwise you don't you don't really need that. 
And as you said, sometimes with hand wavy science, over explanation destroys the magic of the hand wavy science. Yep. So, and, uh, as with the simulators, yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah. This is magic tech, and it's totally cool that it's magic tech. And uh, I am really okay with it being magic tech. Yes. And as she's unplugged, we, we finally slowly fade out of the blue. And the first thing we focus on is the red again in Tendo's bow tie and suspenders. Yes, and and in fact, then we cut back to the when we cut back to the Jaeger, and she passes out. Well, she doesn't really pass out, but she sort of slumps as he as Raleigh helps her out of the. Con- I, I'd the say rig. that's a pretty clear dissociated state. Yeah, yes. yeah, and and I don't know if you notice, but when he he sort of holds her head in her his one arm, and his arm has red lettering on it. Um, yeah, and so does hers. Yeah, like, but it, I mean, that's that's a part of the suit, right? But I love that, like, it's there right next to her head. Like, you know, he's yeah. he picks her, and it's like yeah. really the the red lettering's always there, but it's one of the few like really prominent shots. It's facing us, you know, it's right mm-hmm. next to her, um, which seems like again a pretty a pretty deliberate choice, and not you know, you know it's one of those so, yeah. it's one of the deliberate choices where you kind of wonder is that why there's red lettering on the on the suit you know is that the whole reason for the red lettering in the first place so we can have this shot yeah it might be yeah and and it's kind of actually cool that we've got um that they carry that trauma on these new badass combat suits yes these this is their since this is them both facing their trauma that's really the the um the arc of both of their characters um Mm -hmm. is you know raleigh has the mentor trauma arc um, of overcoming his his pain that would keep him from wanting to be with another pilot, and as she overcomes the trauma that let her become a pilot, um, it makes sense that it's it's sort of tied in a little bit. In and suits. and for both of them, it's a it's about found family and and about accepting another person into their lives, into their heads. Yes, yeah, it's it's that that trust and and that sharing and, and in fact that goes back to what we were saying where we you know we don't get to see the end we get a lot of foreshadowing as to what happened with the jaeger but the brilliance mm-hmm. of this is that at this point in the movie everyone but us knows what happened now you know what i mean yes. like all the major characters raleigh knows mako obviously knows and stacker knows that it that, that it was stacker in that jaeger that it's stacker that saved mako and that's the key piece to understanding everything and in fact we get a conversation a little later that indicates that he knows exactly, Raleigh knows exactly what it is, but we don't. We still haven't gotten that yeah. piece. And that withholding is a fascinating piece of withholding because a lot and of it's, times. And it's really, it's, it's really great that they withheld it as long as they did and put it very much in its proper place. Because most, um, most movies would, you know, we find out information as the main character does to a fault. You know, that is yeah. entirely the method of us getting information is through the main character. But here, you know, everyone is withholding from us. Well, we and, and and if you view Raleigh and Mako as, as co-leads in this, they know a lot about themselves, about the world they're in, that they spend a lot of time withholding in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, we, we get very, there's a lot of, a lot of pieces that have to come into place over time. And, and this is, and you know, Mako, Stacker having saved Mako is something that we've kind of inferred. But mm-hmm. what, I, what I love about withholding that piece is that it keeps this scene entirely as the trauma, and later we get the release of that with yes. with you know her seeing Stacker pop out of the the porthole. Um, I am Idris Elba, sun god, here to save you. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a pure is exact- savior moment. 
that is exactly what it is shot as and it's glorious but but they keep that they hold it back from us so we don't it would be it would actually really hurt the scene to get that yeah uh they keep that through newt going into uh the the bone market to get the kaiju stuff from from hannibal yes and that whole thing so we've got red all over the next scene yes which is just a great sort of reminder of that trauma carrying through and then we have the aftermath where stacker pulls mako off of jaeger duty and grounds her yes and and then we have stacker and raleigh arguing about what's best for mako yes and and everyone is reacting around this memory that we that we don't know yes. yeah yeah i mean it's 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 a good it's i'm looking and it is a good 10 minutes before we get that piece that piece of information mm-hmm. you know which is a, a pretty solid amount of time to withhold that for last a movie piece. that's what two two, two and a bit hours yeah yeah and and again, you know, we're talking blockbuster here. You know, where blockbusters tend to work on a simplicity of narrative function. You know, they're they tend to work at the at the bare minimum of complexity, so that the blockbuster stuff can happen. And what I think is amazing about Del Toro is that he manages to keep that surface level of blockbuster enjoyment while still working underneath at this level of of narrative complexity that most blockbusters don't bother with. He manages to merge them and it shows that you don't have to be, you can be smart and simple at the same time. Yes. You know, there's a, there's a, this thought fallacy that you have to be stupid in order to be simple. And, and this movie is a massive disprovement of that. And this scene specifically shows you, you can be extremely complicated while still having the good time of big monsters and big robots punching each other. And it is a hell of a good time. Yeah, this movie is is really it's funny we're talking about this really emotional and and difficult scene, but this movie's overall feel is light and fun in a lot of ways. You know, I mean there's, yeah. there, there's I mean there, there's a lot of angst and trauma in but it's contained to very specific scenes. And and it doesn't treat that trauma, you know, in the the modern grimdark sort of fashion. You know, it is it's real. The movie has teeth. It's not it's not playing with kid gloves with you, but no, it's also not it's, obsessed with that angst and obsessed with darkness. It's, well, and it, it it's doing the thing that I really love where, you know, yeah, you're traumatized. That doesn't mean you can't laugh again. It doesn't mean that you can't have fun. It doesn't mean that you can't fight and laugh in the face of the source of your trauma. Right. And, and so many movies that focus on trauma – tend to focus on the, you know, you look at the Nolan Bat films, which I like, don't get me wrong, this is not a complaint, right. but, you know, it's sort of about the the insurmountability of trauma, you know, which is the, which is kind of the way that a lot of, like, the grimmer views of things in, in modern blockbuster cinema has been going, that trauma is sort of insurmountable, and... and you this never ex- get better, you must always be miserable, and that's bullshit. Yeah, it's absolutely bullshit, and and this movie is, a, is great because... It's about the triumph. You know, it it parallels the triumph over personal trauma over the the triumph over cataclysmic trauma with the yes. with the world. You know, we have a yes. we have a world that's been battered by these kaiju attacks for what has it been fifteen years, something like that, fifteen twenty, yeah. And and you know, this is about winning. You know, this movie is very specifically, and I like this movie picks up at the end of a war 
purposefully to show us the triumph over it. And we get the same thing with the characters. So when we get a scene like this, it's not meant to depress us and make us feel bad about ourselves. You know, it's about, you know, this is something that, that through their shared experiences, and we, these are the shared experiences. This is the keystone moment of those shared experiences of Raleigh and, and and Mako learning to trust. Raleigh has no judgment of Mako over this scene. The the trust remains. If, any, if anything, his judgment is, you are even stronger than I knew, and you are more worthy of being my co-pilot. Yes, yes. And we get, you know, that Stacker's, what feels like Stacker, the typical arc would be Stacker not thinking Mako can hack it, and that's not it. Stacker is just being dad. You know? Stacker is an overprotective father, which is amazing, but really not what Mako needs at this stage of her life. Yes. And and takes Raleigh confronting him about it and getting chewed out for it rightfully because he doesn't have the right to entirely confront Stacker on a personal level. And but it makes him think and he goes off and thinks and OK, yeah, I fucked up. You know, in a lot of ways, this scene represents all three of their worst fears. You know, you have Mako, you know, being shoved back into her trauma. You have Raleigh, who is being forced to face um, both his and someone else's trauma. Right. I mean, here's a pilot, another pilot where he's forced to experience, you know, while it was his brother's death and it was happening in the moment. Now he has his co-pilot falling to past trauma. So it's the same thing where he has to watch his co-pilot's pain again. Yeah. Um, and then you have Stacker seeing his daughter potentially, you know, exactly what he feared would happen, which is that she would come to harm. Not that she would screw up. That's not what his fear was, but that she would come no. to harm. And this proves to him that she's going to be threatened by harm by doing this. So all three of their traumas are crunched into each other in this scene. Um, <laughs> and and the real key to the movie is that they finally all realize that, okay, this is the worst thing that has happened. Now we get past it. Yes, and this is this is not 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 um, accidentally the exact midpoint of the film. Yeah, this is the this is the twisting point where we from now on we're going we're we're you know we're ascending we're now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're not now. Now the worst thing that has happened has happened uh, that that can happen has happened. You got through it. Now you stand back up and fight again. Yes, yes. It, really, really beautiful and amazing, amazing piece of cinema here that shows off. You know everyone's talents all at once um it was really a, a pleasure to get to um discuss it with you today thanks for um thank you for choosing this fantastic scene anna thank you for giving me the opportunity um where can viewers find you online personally you have a twitter account would you like to uh i have out? a twitter account um Lireview, l-i-r-e-a-v-u-e um is my twitter um people can find me um at murderboarding mostly um and on twitter and also on tumblr though i don't actually wax eloquent about movies quite so much there but you do get a lot of excellent music and captain america winter soldier reblogs on there so i um, can't help the fact that tumblr is obsessed right now and sometimes people are wrong on the internet and i have to fix this Um, definitely check that out. Check out Murderboarding. Um, check out Anna on Twitter. Um, as for me, I am on Twitter as well as Salon. That is S A A 
L-O-N, and um, my blog is Salon Moyo, S-A-A-L-O-N-M-U-Y-O.com, where you can find this and other episodes of Making the Scene. And we will be back um, next time with Anna's partner and crime so we can discuss the other side of Del Toro in Pan's Labyrinth. Anna, once again, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Everyone have a nice day and enjoy your movies. 